We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, so if you'd like to open your Bibles, there you can. If you're new to Christianity, it's right at the front of the Bible. First book. Let me pray for us as we turn to God's Word. Lord, thank you uh, for the gift of a Sunday morning and for the freedoms we have, Lord, to so peacefully arrive at church and sit together and enjoy this beautiful space and friendships and feel safe, Lord, and now be able to, Lord, sit before your word. It's been translated into English. We probably all in this room can read. There's all these blessings, Lord. We just thank you for them. And we don't want to waste them, Lord, so bring your Holy Spirit upon us now and teach us from the life of Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we kicked off our winter sermon series titled The Life of Abraham. And uh, we saw that Abraham's life, it's not just a life that we ought to examine. It's a life we must imitate, walk in the footsteps of Abraham, Paul says. And Abraham's bio, if you want to call it that, is recorded for us in Genesis from chapter 12 through chapter 25. And we picked up last week in the very beginning where Abraham's story really begins. And we saw there that that Abraham's story begins with the calling of God. God's voice breaks through the noise and confusion of Babylon and it finds its man and it awakens him and says, Abraham, you are to be that man that is for the Lord from here on out. And today, staying in this same passage, focusing intently on Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, today we're going to see that that God's calling comes with God's commissioning. It's the main idea. God's calling comes with his commissioning. His commissioning is his sending Abram into his mission. So in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, go. And everything that follows in verses 1, 2, and 3 sets before us what God is commissioning Abraham into. It sets before us the mission of God. And the the promises and plans that unfold in Genesis 2 and 12, verse 2 and 3, they, they are the framework for God's dealings with humanity for the rest of time. This is the blueprint here. So this week I want to dig into these and I simply want to ask, what is God's mission as he announces it to Abraham and how does it run through the Bible and apply to us? Next week we'll return and we'll ask, what does it mean to respond positively to God's commission in a sermon where we look at faith and obedience? Mission of God, according to Abraham today, faith and obedience, according to Abraham next week. Now, before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge a possible objection that the mission of God, according to Abraham, may raise for you. We will discover in a moment something of the scope of this mission. It's totalizing. It begins with the individual, moves to the national, and then the global. God promises to bless Abraham, an individual, Then he promises to make him into a great nation. There's a nation. And then he says through him he will bless all the families of the world, global. So implied in this message 
is that the flourishing of all peoples and all nations depends entirely on their relationship to the God of Abraham. Now, this is what postmodern thinkers call a totalizing truth claim. It, it set, sets the stage for what these same thinkers refer to as a universalist culture. Cultural universalism, according to this line of thought, is the cultural counterpoint to imperialism. Here, one culture assumes they possess universal truth, and therefore they set out to convert the world to it, sometimes forcibly. Now, in the weeks following September 11th, 2001, Chief Rabbi of England, Jonathan Sachs, wrote a piece for the London Times reflecting on deep questions that these attacks raised for an increasingly global community. Sachs wondered, following 9-11, how universalist cultures could go, coexist in a global world. Universalist cultures like ancient Greece and ancient Rome or modern versions like the Enlightenment culture of the West, these cultures, as they spread around, they can bring inestimable good and gifts. And Sachs recognizes this in his piece. But they also bring and have the potential to bring great suffering. So he asked, or he writes, Sachs, they can be these totalizing kind of meta-narratives, universalist cultures, they can be like a tidal wave sweeping away local customs, ancient traditions, and different ways of doing things. So I just want to have this question on the surface as we look at the mission of God as announced to Abraham. Because it is, in fact, a totalizing universal claim and God actually says that people that don't relate to the God of Abraham truly are under a curse. So I just want that question on the table. And I want to be asking, is Abraham just another expression of one culture's viewpoint that like a tidal wave seeks to sweep all uniqueness and all differences away in terms of its relation to other cultures? Does it use its religious stories like a type of political theology to justify domination? So as we look at God's mission announced to Abraham and consider its development across the Bible, we'll have this objection in mind. And I hope you'll come to see, as I have, the truth as one leading biblical scholar has put it. Quote, almost certainly... Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that must say something about it. As we'll see, the mission of God, as it's announced to Abraham, does not seek to sweep away other cultures. Rather, it seeks to rescue them and to bring all that is true and good and beautiful about them to its proper fruition. But it will take some time to see how this is the case. So I'm going to dig in to this mission of God as set forth to Abraham by noticing three themes in it. So you can follow the sermon this way. We're going to look at the, the blessing, the curse, and the people. The blessing of the mission, the curse of the mission, and the people of the mission. 
This all comes right from our passage. We'll see in a moment. So first, the blessing. The theme of blessing shines like many gemstones in Abraham's commissioning. Five times we hear the word bless or blessing. Not only does God promise Abraham, I will bless you in verse 2, but he also promises to make Abraham a blessing bearer. Verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So whatever else the mission of God involves, at its heart is the desire to bestow blessing. So the first question we should ask is, what does this mean? I mean, you use the word blessing in different ways. What does the Bible mean when it talks about God's blessing? More specifically, what does Genesis mean when we read the word blessing? Well, we can see this if we go back to the beginning. Um, The first time the word blessing occurs in the Bible is just some chapters earlier in Genesis 1, and it's during the account of creation. So in Genesis 1, verse 22, God has made uh, the, the sea creatures and the birds, and then we read, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. The next time the word blessed or blessing is used is in Genesis 1, verse 28, right after God created the first man and woman. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God goes on to bless the Sabbath day, which is meant for his creatures, his people's rest and fellowship with him. So you you could say this. The careful reader of Genesis, who wants to know what blessing means according to the Bible, would have to say that at first take, Blessing has this creational meaning to it. Blessing essentially means creation working at its full potential. Or what we might call flourishing, multiplying, fecundity, fruitfulness. That's what blessing is. It's creation at its full potential. So the mission of God... And this is just interesting to to notice. The mission of God is the mission of the creator. It's the creator's hands reaching down into his beloved creation. And in this sense, we might imagine that into whatever culture God's mission goes, it goes with the hands of that culture's benevolent maker. And because, as we learned in Genesis a year ago, that all people in all cultures that spread out across the earth are made in the image of God, you would anticipate that every culture is going to give rise to things in their language or their customs that is pleasing to God and beautiful to him. And they'll also develop things that are unpleasing to him because we're all sinful. But the mission of God will, so to speak, be connecting dots. It'd be like a great furniture maker for whom someone brought an antique to, the original creator somehow, and this person was the perfect person to to look at this piece of furniture and fix it because they had made it. That's what it's like when the mission of God arrives somewhere. There's dots being connected between any green shoots in a culture, any green healthy shoots, and their ultimate end and flourishing. God looks for anything that is good, true, and beautiful in any culture and seeks to bring it to fruition. Does he deal with weeds? Yes, but for the sake of growth, not death. So this is the first thing to see. This is the first aspect of what it means for the mission of God to come with the blessing. But we'd be mistaken if we stopped here. 
There's more to God's mission than unlocking creation's potential. And this is because there is more wrong with the world than stunted growth. We must now turn to a second element in the mission of God, the curse. Though muted in comparison to the fivefold use of blessing, the word curse appears once in this announcement of God's mission. It's in verse 3. God says to Abraham, him who dishonors you, I will curse. This means that people who ultimately come to set themselves against the God of Abraham will be under a curse. Now, just as the term blessing took us back to the beginning of Genesis, so too does the term curse. The careful reader is going to remember, this is not the first time this word's come up. When has curse been used previously? It's been used in Genesis 3, and this is what the reader's meant to think back to. In Genesis 3, we, we read of the fall of humanity into sin. They They break trust with their creator. They turn away and decide they'll do it their own way. And in this one move, they discover that God is not only their creator, but God is their judge. And what happens, the moral logic of disobeying God results just logically in his judgment. How could it not? And his judgment is experienced in the form of a curse. And so we read in Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. This is God speaking to Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So, This is important to recognize because this is the world we live in. Alongside God's blessing, which has been released into creation, is now God's curse. And so this curse and its present experience, we feel it in pain and brokenness and death. And it spreads everywhere to physical, relational, and social realities. So everyone now lives under a curse. Sometimes the Bible calls it the wrath of God. Now you may say, man, I do not like that teaching in the Bible. Please don't bring that up at church. In fact, I don't believe it. Well, guess what? I can prove to you that everyone's under this curse, under the wrath of God. I can give you one simple test to apply to any human being to figure out if they're under the curse. Do you know what it is? Check if they're mortal. The curse, did you hear it? In Genesis 3, you're from dust and to dust you will return. Paul picks this up in Romans 5 verse 12. He says, death entered through sin, speaking of this scene in Adam and Eve, and death therefore spread to all men and women because all men and women sin. Paul says death is the final enemy to be defeated. There's only one human being who's no longer mortal, Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, he can never die again. And so, and here's the point. For the blessing of God to be any blessing at all, it has to do far more than just trying to put creation back in order. Along with the creational element, the blessing of God must have a redemptive element, a salvific one. It must deal with the curse and the wrath of God that is upon all of humanity. And this is where the mission of God parts ways with or goes deeper than, say, the mission of the United Nations Millennial Development Goals, 
which are noble in what they aspire to. They won't take the curse away from anybody. Or the mission of the American government, which has noble things it tries to do. But the blessing of God, the mission of God, it must go where no other mission can go into the depths of humanity's spiritual condition. So now we need to ask, how is God going to do this type of blessing, meaning the type of blessing that can undo the curse through this man, Abraham? Here's how. He does it through Abraham's offspring. And Paul explains this to us in Galatians 3. He does it through Jesus Christ. I'm going to read this to you from Galatians 3 because you'll see how Jesus comes in to deal with the curse But you're also going to see, which I think is awesome, how this specifically unlocks the blessings of Abraham. Galatians 3, picking up at verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the judgment of God to all of us who don't obey him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that's referring to Jesus' crucifixion. He's hung on a tree, and the Old Testament law says that person is cursed who's hung on a tree. Curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the very mission we're talking about, might come to the Gentiles. That word Gentiles could be translated nations. Paul's looking back to when it says that the blessing of Abraham will go to all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. So, Here's where we're at so far. God wants to send his blessing into the earth, which will have a creational element of bringing things to flourish that he's made and honoring what he's made. But it also has to deal with the judgment and curse upon everything. And this happens through Jesus Christ only because in order to be the ultimate blessing bearer, Jesus has to also be the curse bearer. So when you hold out good news to any culture, I hope you can hold something out that can bear the curse and deal with the fact that they're dying. Fix up life for them. Alleviate poverty. Alleviate AIDS. Great. Except that everyone there is going to die and stand before God in judgment. This is the basic teaching of Christianity. Unless their curse is born by Jesus Christ. So here are the two elements of God's mission we've seen so far. And I actually think you could put them both under this idea of blessing. God's desire to bless through Abraham and his descendants is a desire to see the creation flourish. Which ultimately will require its people being redeemed. Does that make sense? You know, um, you sing about this a lot in one of your favorite hymns. Anybody here like the hymn Joy to the World? It's written by Isaac Watts. I want to show you a stanza from this, and you're going to see that, number one, Watts is looking at the curse. But what's amazing is at the beginning of this stanza, he notes both the spiritual calamity of sin and also the physical calamity of thorns and thistles. He says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, that's the spiritual, nor thorns infest the ground, the physical. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. If the creational blessing is brought by working for the common good, 
the redemptive blessing is brought by working for conversion. Does that make sense? Now, we don't always do such a great job holding these two things together, caring for the natural and social as well as the spiritual needs of the world around us. And in the past century, at least in America, we've seen some churches focus entirely on the social and natural problems in the created and social order, forgetting altogether the spiritual plight of the neighbors they are supposedly called to love. And we've also seen churches overlook all the physical and social elements of life here and now and only speak of people's spiritual needs. We can do better. We need a properly integrated view of God's mission. And some people will say, and what I mean by that is the creational and salvific element. Helping with common human needs and helping with spiritual cursedness and sin. Now some people, I've read some analogies about how you hold these two things together. And here's two I don't like. Some people will say this is like two wings of a bird, right? They both are kind of equal, work for the creational, work for the salvific. Some people say like two blades of a scissors. I think those misunderstand an important ordering. The analogy I've come across that I like better for how you hold these together is the analogy of a, a car's wheel, an automobile's driving wheel. So think about a car and a wheel for a second and, and, and its complex parts. Okay, so the engine of the car is the only way the wheel can move. Okay, the engine represents the gospel. This is the power source. This is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The, the hub of the wheel, the first thing that starts to turn on the axle, this represents a spiritual reality, reality you might call conversion. This is a person being awakened, going from death to life, and having the Spirit of God in them. But the hub of the wheel, it has a tire on it, right? And the tire, it's what actually touches the ground. And the tire represents the, the social engagement and the very concrete acts of goodness that any person that has the gospel driving their life ought to be doing when their life, when the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And so this ordering is important. All these parts are necessary. God's mission is fueled by his gospel. God's mission sees that the problems in the natural world have at their root sin. So you could think of all the problems you see in the natural world, if you think of a great forest that you can see, and then you think underneath that forest is a great root system. That root system is this spiritual calamity. And Christians are trying to deal with both, but they just understand there's a root kind of cause relationship, right? Cause symptom. And they want to get at the roots and also that which is above ground. So Jesus Christ and his cross become the center of God's mission because they're the only way we have a blessing bearer who is our curse bearer. And now I want to just ask one third thing or look at one third thing. We've seen how, how the mission of God involves a blessing, a curse, a curse being lifted, um, how this happens in Jesus. And I want to talk about the people of the mission of God. Remember, blessing, curse, and people. Um, God's mission, of course, as we see it in Genesis 12, it, it obviously involves an individual, Abram. We'll be called Abraham later. And it's going to involve all the people of the earth. Abraham's going to bless all the families of the earth. But there's an intermediary. The blessing doesn't go from the individual to the earth. It passes through another entity. And that entity is a people. And that people is in this passage under the phrase, great nation. In verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. 
So God's blessing is somehow going to pass to the world through a people. So what does this mean exactly? What's the role of a people, a collected group? And to understand this, we need to to watch the story unfold in the Bible once again. When Abraham dies, he's not a great nation. In fact, the only part of the promised land he possesses when he dies is the plot of ground where he's buried, he and Sarah. It's actually really sweet and really dear. Um, That's all he owns. And he's certainly not a great nation. But some 400 years later, his ancestors are going to be formed into a nation, the nation of Israel. They um, become enslaved in Egypt. And under Moses' leadership, God delivers them. This is called the Exodus. It's recorded in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And then God brings them into the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, there's a nation being developed by God. God wants them first and foremost to know who he is, the true God, and worship him. And then he gives them laws to keep to order them according to his character. And what we see then as the story unfolds is that Israel, by knowing who God is and by ordering their civic and communal life around God's laws, they're to become an attractional people a light to the nations. So something about the way they order their lives according to the true God, not just in worship, but in how they relate to one another, is meant to say to the world, this is true humanity. This is what it looks like. You should come. Let me give you one example about how this works practically in the people of God for Israel. So his laws are meant to make them attractive to others. And one of the things at the heart of God's law in the Old Testament, of course, is the importance of justice. And we, we see that there's, there's laws for justice that, that apply to very basic things like stealing and murder and lying. Any civic organization, any community needs to have these kinds of laws. But there are also laws from God that address more subtle situations of justice, situations that focus very tenderly on the most vulnerable, So in a farming culture like Israel, the use of day labor was common, especially during harvest season. When when a landowner needed to increase workforce quickly at harvest, they would hire day laborers. And in both Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, there are laws that make clear that if you hire a day laborer, you had to pay them that same day before they went home. So Leviticus 19 verse 13. God says to Israel, this is a law, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker, that's a day laborer, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. That's strange law. Why is that there? Why is this important? Because day laborers were the poorest of the poor and they lived hand to mouth. They needed what they earned that day to feed their family that night. To keep their wages from them for any reason was an act of injustice that God would not abide. So he wrote this rule into the laws he gave his people. So you see, when his people, by caring for the most vulnerable in a unique way that might have been different than the surrounding cultures, Israel was meant to be reflecting the heart of the true God. That he's merciful and tender and loving. So the mission is meant to go through an attractional people. Now, this relates to us today because in Jesus, God is now forming the people of God by faith in his son. So all those attached to Jesus by faith, whether Jew or Gentile, they make up the people of God, the church. And it is still the case 
that how God's people keep his law as it's applied through Jesus Christ, how we follow the teachings of the New Testament and the Ten Commandments, it's still the case that this is supposed to make our collective life attractional, beautiful. It's not supposed to make us cold and judgmental. And this has implications for how the mission of God is meant to be carried out by us today. So along with people speaking gospel words in their communities and caring for the needs of others, the local church, the people of God, we are to be formed into an attractional epicenter of God's presence in the world. And do you know, um, the key term used for Christian mission um, or how you apply Christian mission in the New Testament is the word witness. And this is worth noting because if you think about it, we're not called uh, blowhards or know-it-alls. We're not called professors. We're called witnesses. And a witness, it has this inherent idea that what you say in terms of propositional truth is inherently attached to the witness and quality of your own life. In other words, if you say, God teaches love your neighbor and you're hating your neighbor, you're not a witness. And so you see, God has locked us in as a people where our witness, as it goes about in mission through all different cultures and all different people of the world, it must bear the quality of our suffering Lord. We hold forth a crucified Messiah. We can't be coercive. We can't be domineering. We need to be comforting and humble, clear, yes, but coercive, never, domineering, never. We would persuade all men and women of the good news of Jesus. We want everyone to know that the blessings and promises of God to Abraham come now through Jesus. But we would not coerce or arrogantly boast to anyone because this is not the way of our servant king. So let me wrap this up with just two closing thoughts. We've looked at the blessing, the curse, and the people of the mission of God. And we might be in a place now to simply return to this question. Is God's mission as announced to Abraham a totalizing truth claim? Yes, it is. But is it setting out to be some sort of tidal wave that seeks to sweep away all cultural difference? Quite the contrary. The mission of God is the arrival in all cultures of their benevolent creator who knows them and loves them. And he comes not only with his creational blessing, but he comes with his hands marked in blood because he's coming to redeem them, to lift them up. The mission of God looks for everything in any culture that's good, true, and beautiful and seeks to bring it to his ultimate flourishing, not to reduce it to some monolithic, one culture, one language. Christianity really has been capable of planning itself in more diverse situations than any other faith I can think of. In a couple months, I'll be in Kingali, Rwanda, for a, a conference, a Christian conference. And I've never been to Africa, never, never been to Rwanda. And at this conference, I will be with Christians from all over the world, from vastly different cultures who worship, worship in very different ways that look totally different. And we will be utterly united in the mission of God because we've all met the curse bearer who is the blessing bearer, Jesus Christ. And you can just think how this message, it has taken root in places as diverse as the Amish in Pennsylvania, the Catholics in Italy, 
the Baptists in Georgia, the Charismatics in South America. I mean, all different types of cultures. It takes root and it's thick because it is not setting out to crush, but to breathe life wherever it goes. And lastly, to those who may be intimidated by the topic of mission, you know, it's not one of these feel-good sermons right away, kind of as a challenge. Um, I, I picture to myself the busy parent. It's like, yeah, I got four kids. I can hardly get them through homework. And now you want to add the mission of God to my life? Like, please, I just want you to know God's doing this mission, okay? Not you. He's going to use you. But your mission, it may be to evangelize your children and disciple them. They have hearts. They're probably going to outlive you. That's a great mission. So I would just say to all of us, a real practical thing to end with is pay attention to the relational webs God builds around you, whether by family or through friend group, through the gym you go to, through your school, through your neighborhood, through where you work. And ask yourself, is there a relationship or a friendship here? where at some point I could invite this person to experience the people of God, meaning you could invite them to church or you could invite them to your small group for a board game night or just a fun outing to get dinner. Because it may be, as has often been the case, that people's first brush and first touch from the blessing of God will come through the smiles and the warmth of God's people. Lord, we thank you that we are sons and daughters of Abraham and Jesus. And we feel the realness of this mission and commissioning that we would bring your blessing, which is offered to the world through the arms of your son to all families of the earth. May it be so in this church. Amen.